Welcome to another episode of the Lucid Shapes podcast. If you're looking for clarity in an age of chaos, then you're in the right place. Now, I don't normally begin these podcast episodes with bold declarations, but today will be an exception. So here it is, our headline thesis statement. When it comes to the concept of net zero, you're being lured into a culture war that you cannot win. Now, before we begin, let me be clear, I'm not doubting climate change itself here. What we're going to dive into is the credibility of the solution. Specifically, the idea that transitioning to renewable energy can be achieved without major changes to the way we live our lives. As I'll explain, my point isn't that we don't need to make changes. The point is that those who are arguing most loudly for change are vastly understating the scale of the challenge. And in the final part of this episode, I'll explain why progressives, if they hitch their wagon to net zero, are setting themselves up for a culture war that will almost certainly be won by far-right reactionaries. Now, when discussing a topic as important and as technical as this, we would be wise to consider the extent to which we are qualified to discuss it and evaluate the evidence. Speaking personally, I have no qualifications in science. My background is in philosophy and sociology, but I am an avid follower of the work of people such as Nate Hagens, Arthur Berman and Simon Mishaw, who are all experts on these issues. And to be honest, all I am really doing here is presenting the work of these experts whilst adding my own Marxist and psychoanalytic perspective. So what exactly is net zero? We all surely know the problem by now. There's too much carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and it's heating the planet. We face rising temperatures, rising sea levels and collapsing ecosystems. So an idea presents itself. First of all, minimize the amount of carbon dioxide we emit into the atmosphere. Then secondly, use technology to remove however much carbon dioxide we've been forced to put in. Everything balances out to zero. Radical ideas, especially when they challenge powerful interests. Never get an easy ride in the mainstream news media. But surprisingly, not only has net zero escaped real critical scrutiny, it has even become the declared aim of governments across the world. Is this because net zero is not a particularly radical idea? Or is it because net zero is wrapped up in a collection of myths that work to hide just how radical an idea it really is? Let's start with a look at energy efficiency. Everything we do from the moment we get out of bed all throughout our day up to the point where we get back into bed again, our every action consumes energy. Reducing energy consumption is a key part of net zero, and it's claimed that making our energy use more efficient is one way to reduce energy consumption. Except it doesn't. Since as far back as 1865, when the economist William Stanley Jevons published his book, The Coal Question, experts have known that increasing energy efficiency does not reduce energy use. Energy is not limitless, which means we have to prioritize its use. You might imagine these priorities in the form of a triangle. 
At the top, we have absolutely essential needs. Heat for cooking food, heating homes, washing. Further down are less essential uses. Energy for powering, do-it-yourself tools, television sets, home computers. If energy use is efficient, it becomes available for the non-essential. Virtual reality headsets, home jacuzzis, all the way down to the frivolous, motorized garage doors, electric can openers, and so on. The important point is that the triangle is bottomless. As items within the triangle become more energy efficient, all that happens uh, is that surplus energy gets freed up to be used elsewhere, and people's standard of living increases. Today, this is now known as Javon's paradox. Increasing energy efficiency results in an increase in energy usage, not, as we might expect, a decrease. It's a difficult concept to accept because it goes against our common sense assumption that a more energy efficient home will result in less energy usage. All you need to keep in mind is that this is a story about people's standard of living, not just how much energy your television set uses. As long as people want to increase their standard of living, energy efficiencies will always create increased energy use. Here's a clip from a conversation between Nate DeHagens and Daniel Smachtenberger discussing Jevon's paradox. I think people really having an intuition for this paradox is so important. The idea that there's stuff that we do that mediates our current quality of life and we can make it more efficient, like it seems like that is a way to be able to have less impact on the planet. We can do shit more efficiently so we can use less stuff and still have the same quality of life, except that's never what happens, right? The that, that would be true if the scale was capped. Right. And so the Jevons paradox says you were kind of mentioning from the demand side, people buy more shit at Walmart, but also from the supply side, there are certain products and services that are just not uh, profitable to make yet. But if I drop the price of energy enough as one of the inputs, whole new market sectors open up. There's whole new businesses and industries that can now be profitable. If we were to use energy efficiency to reduce overall energy usage, we would have to stop the growth of this triangle with strict measures such as energy rationing or banning the sale of luxury items that consume too much energy. Now, don't get me wrong, there is a very great and honorable history of using rationing to achieve a historically important task. During World War II, rationing was used to ensure that the war effort was maximized. But let's be honest, how often have you heard an advocate of net zero argue in favor of rationing? The answer is probably never. Given how well established Jevons' paradox is, you would assume that advocates of net zero would avoid the topic of energy efficiency altogether. But you'd be wrong. In fact, the UK government's 10-point plan for a green industrial revolution actually claims that their proposed green home finance initiatives could help to improve the energy efficiency of around 2.8 million homes. If you understand Jevon's paradox, then you understand that such efforts will increase energy usage, not reduce it. And so this is a perfect example of how net zero gains ground as an idea without ever being properly scrutinized in the mainstream media. Everyone, from left to right, can support it, making it appear as if net zero is just a piece of political common sense. 
In the mainstream narrative, the only people existing outside of this zone of common sense are on the fringes. Either those extreme environmentalists who want to stop the use of all fossil fuels immediately or those on the other extreme who just don't believe in climate science and reject net zero completely. Net zero would involve replacing many of our current technologies that run directly on fossil fuels with versions that run on electrical power. In the case of vehicles, this means replacing combustion engines and fuel tanks with batteries. Now, let's be clear, many batteries can be very simple. A water tank on the roof of your house can be a battery, even if it will only power a small light bulb for a few hours. But to power a vehicle along a highway at an acceptable speed requires something more technologically sophisticated. Enter the problem of metals and minerals, some of which are extremely rare. In 2021, the geologist Professor Simon Misho published a report commissioned by the government of Finland on the feasibility of transitioning to electric vehicles. Misho is a regular guest on Knight Hagen's podcast. Here they are discussing his research. But when we talk about this, we're talking about a new infrastructure, basically, that not only do you need to build the solar panels and the wind turbines, um, but you need to have the batteries for when mm -hmm. the solar and wind, uh, the, the sun's not shining, the wind's not blowing, and the transmission lines mm -hmm. um, that interconnect everything. And all three of those things require minerals and materials. Correct. So there are some popular, one might always say religious, forecasts out there that the entire society, the world society, can shift to 100% renewables. And obviously that can happen um, because not too long ago, we were 100% renewable. We just had far fewer people and lower uh, per capita consumption. So I am in favor of moving towards largely renewables. The question is, I don't think the current thinking on that, uh, I wrote an essay called Renewables, uh, Right Answer to the Wrong Question. The question is, what is our society going to look like? What, how many people, what sort of living standards do we have? But my question to you is, and you've spent a lot of time working on this, under those scenarios, the optimistic, let's just transition to a 19 terawatt or higher global society using mostly renewables, I've debunked that from an energy standpoint, but you have insights onto the minerals required yeah. for such a thing. Can you talk about that a bit? Right. So, for example, once we've actually worked out the size of the problem, like if we were to take the entire transport fleet electric and a combination of electric and hydrogen, right, we will need a certain amount of electrical power on top of what we need now to charge those batteries and to make that hydrogen. So now we have an idea of how much electricity we will need. We know how much batteries we need based on the number of vehicles we have. So once you've actually got the split of what's a hydrogen vehicle and what's a electric vehicle, we, we have a rough idea of, of, of that. Now, each of those batteries, the vast majority of them haven't been built yet. So we're talking about extracting it from mining. It can't be recycled. You can't recycle something that's not constructed. So we know we have a volume of batteries and we know and we have an idea of because the power grid size, we know have an estimate of stationary power storage. And so the numbers I've come up with, it's, it's, it's roughly 2.8 billion tons of batteries 
if we were to look at lithium-ion battery chemistry like NMC811. Now, there are other chemistries, and so I do have a study that, that show the different chemistries of what it will likely be in 2040. Right, so I've actually assembled the number of batteries and assembled the different chemistries of what the IEA thinks it will be in 2040. And then I've estimated, well, given the chemistries, what mass of metals will be needed once you actually sum the aggregate together? Wind turbines were included. For example, in each wind turbine, you've got a two-ton neodymium magnet. <laughs> um, and these things only last 20 years. There's 4,000 pounds of neodymium in one wind turbine? There's 4,000 pounds of neodymium magnet. How much neodymium is in there? I've right. yet to actually establish. Okay. Uh, it's it's it. not all neodymium. It's an alloy with something else, but it's a lot. We're talking about more than a couple of kilos. Right, right. So once you actually sum all those numbers uh, up, up together and then compare that against, say, 2019 production, uh, if we were to produce metals at the same rate, how many years would we need to mix those targets? The answer is we need several decades to several hundred years to several thousand years, depending on the metal, to produce enough of that metal to replace the existing system as it is now. There are, of course, some people who refute all this and claim that the metals and minerals required for net zero can be infinitely recycled and that, therefore, the mining that needs to be done is a one-off. The problem is that this, this assumes our energy use will not grow and that the demand for batteries will remain static, a zero-growth vision of the future that mainstream net-zero advocates maintain a careful distance from. And these issues are not just confined to nickel and lithium. The investment analyst uh, group Berg's Graben recently undertook modelling of every single copper mine in the world. They found that transitioning to a green economy will create a copper supply gap of around 4 to 6 million metric tonnes by the year 2030. And by supply gap, we mean that the copper required for all this electrification just isn't going to be there. Another misleading type of chart you'll find being put out by net zero advocates shows that carbon emissions and economic activity can be decoupled so that we can still grow our economy whilst reducing the amount of carbon dioxide we emit. However, these charts will always refer to specific places, not the whole planet. So, for instance, it looks like a Western country such as the UK is growing its economy whilst reducing its carbon emissions dramatically. But this is nonsense, a serious inquiry into the relationship between economic growth in the UK and carbon emissions would have to look at the emissions used in everything that the UK imports. In fact, graphs such as these ignore the essential role of fossil fuels in the mining of metals used for renewable technology, such as solar panels and lithium batteries, because all of that takes place outside the UK. In reality, economic growth is 99% correlated with energy consumption. And growing our economy will always involve growing our energy use. For every person you'll find online highlighting these misleading statements about net zero, you'll find another person uh, debunking the debunkers, coming up with another graph that explains why mining for renewables is going to be better than what we've been doing for the past 200 years. So how is a non-expert meant to judge 
It seems impossible to take sides in a debate with such specialized terminology, complex charts and concepts taken from diverse domains, such as physics, geology, and economics. But the danger is that too many people will take one look at the challenge of trying to work through all this material, throw their hands up and say, this is all too complex for me. I'm specifically concerned about those who consider themselves to be progressive and open-minded um, in the absence of true understanding. The temptation is for people to become tribal and close ranks, saying, I don't fully understand the issue, but the people whose values I'm usually aligned with support net zero. So I'm going to support net zero too. Given this, why have I chosen to step aside from those whose values I'm usually aligned with to take a more critical perspective on net zero? My answer is rooted in the old Marxist claim that very often the ideas people subscribe to are simply a reflection of their economic conditions. You see, you have to remember that renewable energy sources only produce electrical power. And at the moment, only 22% of the world's energy use takes the form of electricity. However, interest in net zero is highly concentrated in the well-off Western democracies, which have moved their manufacturing base to poorer parts of the world. Fossil fuels are essential to heavy industry. Generating high temperatures for various processes, including smelting, forging and casting. They are typically burned in furnaces or boilers to produce heat, which then gets used to melt metals and other materials. You cannot produce those extremely high temperatures with electricity. In other words, you cannot have heavy industry without burning fossil fuels. So you take away manufacturing and heavy industry. You put all those dirty fossil-fueled industries out of sight offshore. And then you build up your services sector, retail, finance, tourism, technology. If you're part of the elite or part of the professional managerial class living in a big city like New York, London or Paris, you are basically swimming in electrical power. Being disconnected from the reality of heavy industry and its dependence on fossil fuels, it becomes all too easy to believe that we can just electrify everything and keep it all up and running with renewable energy. Except, currently, only around 20% of the world's energy use takes the form of electricity. Of course, that will likely increase in the coming years. But who amongst the net zero advocates is bravely standing up and admitting in public that for a very long time, hundreds of years, in fact, we were indeed running the whole economy using renewable energy. We call that period of history the Middle Ages. Are the net zero advocates going to invite us to warmly embrace the second Middle Age? So, to return to the question, why listen to the net zero skeptics? Ask yourself what is more likely, that heavy industry really can be run on electrical power, or that the people advocating for net zero have been misled by their environment into thinking that everything can be run on electricity. My belief is that this is all a case of what Nate Hagens calls energy blindness a state in which we are oblivious to the amount and type of energy used to produce the world around us. 
The following is another clip from Hagen's podcast. On this occasion, the guest is Arthur Berman, a petroleum geologist with 45 years of energy industry experience, including both fossil and non-fossil energy sources. Well, I'm, I'm really curious about when the world will realize that all of the alternatives to oil are basically only good for electric power generation. And electric power generation is a relatively smaller portion of the total energy consumption that we have. And so I'm not, again, being critical or, um, or saying anything other than observation. And that is the idea that the fact that people think that somehow renewable energy is going to solve everything we've been talking about, it's simply not true. It cannot. Um, it, we, you know, we can't do all the things that we're, we need to do in our civilization just with electric power. And so in a way, we're, we're solving the easy part of the, of the problem and convincing ourselves that once we finally get it right, we'll have the whole thing solved. And, and and again, I'm all for renewable energy. I'm totally in favor of renewable energy, but it's simply not going to solve any of the stuff we've been talking about today. The alternative to the theory that net zero advocates are energy blind is to believe that all net zero skeptics are being paid by big oil and the fossil fuel lobby. But in researching this topic, I've found several people uh, such as Nate Hagens, who have put progressive values at the heart of their net zero skepticism. That brings us to my biggest concern about net zero, um, the looming culture war that is likely to discredit progressives if they become defenders of the current vision of net zero. The reason some conservatives and others on the right wing of the political spectrum are openly hostile to net zero. Uh, is that they correctly intuit everything we have discussed here. In particular, they seem to realize what should be obvious by now. We cannot achieve net zero without reducing economic activity. Because such an obvious conclusion is never mentioned by most net zero advocates, the space has been created for reactionaries in the UK to call for a referendum on the issue. If progressives fail to seriously think through the implications of net zero right now, the danger is that in a few years time, we will be in the midst of a heated culture war over the issue and find ourselves with an impossible choice. Either defend the energy blind liberals who promoted this idea without properly understanding it or join forces with the reactionaries. But I think there is a third option. Remember when we were discussing Jevon's paradox, I pointed out that as long as people want to increase their standard of living, energy efficiencies will always create increased energy use. Perhaps we need to question what it means to increase our standard of living. Knight Hagens often makes the point that once our basic needs are met, the best things in life are free. In a society dominated by consumerist values, saying something like this is heresy. 
But perhaps this is the answer making the progressive argument for reducing our energy consumption whilst ensuring that everyone has access to the basic essentials of life. As always, thank you for listening to this episode of the Lucid Shapes podcast. If you enjoyed it or found it somewhat interesting, then please subscribe in your podcast app. It would also be amazing if you could rate and review the podcast in Apple Podcasts. I love giving my favorite podcasts five star reviews full of praise. It gives me a warm, fuzzy feeling inside. So if you'd like to have that feeling also, then you know what you need to do. See you next time, my friends. Thank you.